and please be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, and uh, while you're doing that, we'll do a dry run. This is uh, the point in the service where next week, starting next week, um, the children will be dismissed to go to what I think we're going to call Children's Chapel. So uh, it'll be uh, ages, what, four through eight? Four through seven? Something like that. Uh, so, you know, if, you're, if your children um, want to go, we're going to have some teachers who will take them to the fellowship hall, and um, they'll do something uh, together as a group, and then they'll kind of split up into groups that are a little bit more specific to their ages, uh, just to, to be able to um, learn about the Bible and, and do a little activity uh, together. So, and then they'll come back. They'll actually return uh, at the end of the sermon um, and be able to participate uh, with us as, as we all take communion. So, there you go. Just a warning. That's what we're going to do starting next week. <clears throat> um, so, Acts 17. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, so, uh, raise your hand if you feel like you're good at evangelism. I'm sticking my hands in my pockets. <laughs> um, yeah, what does it even mean, good at evangelism? Um, does it mean you're an extrovert? In case you weren't aware, uh, being an extroverted Presbyterian is something of an oxymoron. Uh, Does it mean that you feel comfortable inviting your friends to church? Does it mean that you can uh, steer any conversation towards spiritual matters? You're really good at that. Does it mean that you live a model lifestyle that attracts others to the faith and just makes them want to ask you, um, what is it that you have that I don't have? Um, Does it mean that you're good at apologetics? You win debates with unbelievers. Does being good at evangelism mean that that you see a lot of professions of faith because of your interactions with unbelievers? Um, I don't think any of those things are at the core of good evangelism. (laughs) Not at the core, right? Uh, In our passage, though, we get a couple of ideas Not a thorough dissertation on evangelism, but a couple of good ideas about what God thinks should shape our evangelism. And really, these are things that we can all do to some degree, uh, regardless of whether we're introverts or extroverts, regardless of whether we're specifically um, called or gifted to the ministry of an evangelist, um, like Paul obviously was. Uh, Paul in Athens the text we're looking at this morning, uh, gives us a good basic pattern for evangelism, even if you're not up for religious public speaking, uh, like we see in this text. So we're going to look at this text this morning and and talk about kind of what the content is of good evangelism. And then um, I was trying to squeeze it into this sermon, but it deserves its own sermon. (laughs) So next week, we're going to look at the same passage again, talk more about the motives uh, for evangelism. So uh, So let's pray, and then we'll get into the passage together. God, we know that you have uh, called your people out of darkness and into light. And that light is a beautiful, uh, glorious light, the light of your grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And and we certainly are attracted to it, and we uh, hope that those around us would also be attracted to it. And we pray for your help right now. as we uh, want to be 
the kind of people who obey your great commission to go and make disciples of all peoples. We, we need your help. We need your word to shape our thoughts. We need your spirit to shape our hearts. And so we ask for that help as we come to your word right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, starting in uh, verse 16. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way, way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so Luke gives us this um, summary, right? It's not a full account of probably uh, Paul's speech, um, but a summary of Paul's evangelistic speech in Athens. He gives it to us, I think, as an example of how it should be done, right? Um, many scholars think that this was Paul's finest hour, as was recorded in the book of Acts. But it's actually kind of funny, because this uh, scene just sort of falls flat at the end. It's like um, if you bought some totally sweet uh, 4th of July fireworks, uh, and you, you lit it up, and you know it's supposed to go for 30 seconds, and it starts off with a really great promising first pop, but then just fizzles out like a dud, right? Uh, it's kind of what we see in this. After his speech, uh, I'm going to read actually verses 32 through 34 which were not included in the bulletin, uh, the last couple of verses there. After his speech, some mocked. 
And that's not exactly the response you're looking for after a slam dunk sermon, right? Some mocked him. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believe, among whom were uh, also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Um, so, I mean, com compared to Paul's other evangelistic campaigns, numbers-wise, uh, this one's pretty much chalked up as a failure. Uh, he, got, he got laughed off the stage. He got a couple followers, right? But um, nobody that gets any further mention in the New Testament. He didn't even really get a church going in Athens. We don't see any evidence of that in the New Testament. Um, regardless of the results, though, we, we look at this scene as the great apostle championing the faith among the leading pagan philosophers of the day. Right? Um, so was it good evangelism or not? Yeah, it was. We know Paul was a good evangelist, so maybe the first thing we need to notice um, is that we shouldn't necessarily judge evangelism by the tangible results. A lot of times, God is pleased to grow his church by such efforts, or even by much worse efforts than Paul's, right? And a lot of times, good evangelism falls on deaf ears as uh, sinful people have a natural resistance to the gospel. And ultimately, the results of evangelism are in God's hands. Uh, he's the one who changes people's hearts. He's the one who grants them repentance and faith, the Bible says. Even though Paul is brilliant, he's spirit-filled, he's well-educated, and he has airtight arguments, even the best evangelist in the history of the world cannot automatically produce conversions. But... Paul was faithful with the message of the gospel. He was faithful to do the work of the evangelist. And his speech in Athens is a great example for us. And really, this morning, there's just two pretty simple things um, that I want us to see from this passage. Uh, first is what Paul learned about his audience. What Paul learned about his audience. And then second, what Paul told his audience. Right, pretty simple. He learned something. He told them something. Uh, what are those things? I think those are the key components for us of, uh, of good evangelism. So first, what Paul learned about his audience. Paul was on a forced detour during his uh, second missionary journey. He was uh, kicked out of the last place he was. His guys were still there. He came to Athens. He was waiting for them. He was alone in Athens. He was walking around, and he was talking with people. In verse 17, it says, he reasoned. He uh, literally uh, dialogued, the, the word we, uh, the Greek word that we get the word dialogue is, is that word. He reasoned or dialogued, conversed in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. Right, and this is kind of where the, the key encounter takes place, um, or is initiated anyway, in the marketplace. The marketplace was the hub of urban life. It's where people spent their leisure time, and he was there every day with those who happened to be there. It's actually reminiscent of uh, the way Socrates was um, before him. Uh, in the marketplace, available to talk. Anybody who wants to listen, we're going to talk. Right? And he was talking with Epicureans, and um, they were basically, I mean, it's hard to boil these guys down, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, learn about them in your philosophy class if you want to, but... Uh, 
Epicureans were basically materialists. They believed in gods, but pretty much thought, you know, the gods were detached, not involved with the world. Everything that happens here is kind of random chance, whatever. And they were sort of refined hedonists, right? Since things are the way they are, we're going to enjoy life. Um, not, not really sensual hedonism. It's refined and cultured. We're, we're going to pursue the good things in our life. And Paul was talking with Stoics, who were basically pantheists. Um, pantheism is when you think God and creation are pretty much indistinguishable from one another. God inhabits creation in a way that you can talk about them interchangeably. Uh, thinking of God as the world soul, right? These Stoics were... Uh, they believed in divine order and engagement up to the point of fatalism. Uh, and they mixed the divine and the created and pr promoted uh, sort of a, a resigned submission to that fatalism, to fate. Um, you know, somebody says, You're, you took that rather stoically. Well, it means, you know, whatever kind of suffering came your way, you didn't flinch. You didn't react emotionally. You just went with the flow, right? That's... Uh, that's them. So at first, the Athenians were confused at Paul's message. It's clear from verse 18. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the word for babbler um, actually kind of originated as literally uh, like a, a bird that picks up seeds in the gutter type of thing. It's a scavenger type of thing. And it, it came to mean kind of a third-rate uh, philosopher. It was somebody who, who picked and chose what seemed interesting, kind of buffet-style, uh, from the ideas of other good philosophers, and then regurgitated or plagiarized those ideas without really understanding much of what they were saying. Right? So um, from their polyist, uh, polytheistic perspective, they have this worldview in the culture where there are many gods and, and whatnot, uh, very superstitious. From that perspective, Paul seemed to be talking about a strange kind of mishmash of these new gods they hadn't heard of before, right? Jesus is apparently some new Jewish god. He's got a Jewish name. And uh, the resurrection, Anastasis, some Greek god, Greek name, I guess. Uh, what are they? They're getting together somehow. I don't know. Um, Philip Johnson says... Uh, in the, in the philosopher's eyes, Paul was patching together his bizarre message from the odds and ends of other people's ideas. Right, so they laughed at him. Babbler, you know. <clears throat> but thinking Paul was a fool, apparently didn't stop their curiosity. <clears throat> says in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So their, their main concern was to gain some new information. They're pursuing enlightenment. Uh, they wanted to grow in their knowledge. <clears throat> so essentially, Paul was dealing with philosophers, right? They might have been proponents of different schools of thought. Um, but they were all lovers of wisdom. And in Athens, they took that love of wisdom pretty seriously. In fact, they took it to the ex extreme. Knowledge, philosophy, was an idol for them. 
In a sense, they're looking for their salvation in knowledge. Their ability to reason is what made them somebody. It's what set them apart. And so uh, their hunger for the newest ideas, for enlightenment, was insatiable. They based their pride on their knowledge. Uh, They placed the highest value upon it. And really in in that day, John Stott says Athens was the empire's intellectual metropolis. It was uh, the ancient world's equivalent of a great university city. In fact, it was the only university city. It's kind of like you uh, take Oxford and Cambridge and Boston and roll them all up together in one, and that was Athens. And they looked down their spectacled noses at Paul, right? These scholars, these philosophers. Ultimately, they were proud of being intellectuals, of being philosophers, whether they were Epicureans or Stoics or whatever other schools they represented. And that is what Paul learned about his audience. What they loved most. What they looked to for pride. What they thought they would find their salvation in. He learned about what their idols were. They had taken something good, the sharp minds that God gave them, And they had made it the ultimate thing. They replaced God with it. And so we will grow in our ability to do good evangelism when we start to learn what drives our audience, right? Whether it's a public setting, an audience, or uh, your audience is private with your friends, uh, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. We have to learn what they value most in life. We have to learn what gives them pride. What do they look to to set them apart from other people? What do they uh, devote their time and energy and money to? And when we learn about these things, we learn about what their idols are. What are the things they're looking to in order to derive significance or security or identity or comfort or purpose in life? And that could easily be the intellect or knowledge like the Athenians, right? We live in a place that puts high value on education and learning. We can understand, um, we've had experience with when people try to one-up one another by mentioning the books they've read or the degrees they've earned. Um, But people turn to so many different things to get what they think is um, the good life out of them. People idolize their children uh, or power, sex, image, comfort, Sometimes it's pretty blatant, right? A few weeks ago, I was in a really upscale department store with a a friend of mine, and he was doing his shopping there. Um, And the fellow who was helping us was probably wearing a suit worth a couple thousand dollars, and he was extolling the virtues of fine clothing. And he looked at my friend, who dresses pretty nicely, gets his clothes from places like that, and said, you know how it is. You want only the best. Once you've worn expensive clothing, it's really hard to go back to cheaper clothing. You want to set yourself apart by wearing clothing that no one else has. And then he looked at me in my Levi's and scuffed up boots. (laughs) And he says, you know, it's like uh, you get a nice truck or something and you don't want your brother to drive the same truck. <laughs> like, how do you know I have a truck that barely stays alive and I wouldn't wish it on my brother? 
<clears throat> needless to say, uh, I had those boots shined up that very same day. <clears throat> but that's, that's about as clear as it gets, right? In your face, idolatry. This guy finds his identity in exclusive designer fashion. Rather than let the one true God tell him who he is, he's devoting his existence to carving out an image for himself. And usually, usually it's a little subtler than that. It's a little harder to detect. But everyone uh, has his or her idols in place of God. We're all born worshipers. We're created to worship and to give our lives to something. We all have a fundamental need to devote our lives to something, to pursue significance and purpose in something. And as sinners, as those who have rejected the one true God for idols, <clears throat> we prefer to be in control of the things we worship. So we create false gods out of things that are lesser than ourselves. If we want to be good evangelists, um, we need to learn about what those are. Learn about our culture's idols. We need to learn about our Christian subcultures, idols, in order to help us learn how the gospel subverts those idols, how it undercuts them, how the gospel addresses the brokenness of our hearts. Which leads to the second point. It's what Paul told his audience. Um, Paul spoke to them to correct their false views on spirituality. He provided a true worldview, and he spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ into the Athenians' lives. Their main problem, as we've seen already, is the, the idol of the intellect. They thought that their knowledge was superior, that it made them worthy. But they had actually implicitly acknowledged that they didn't know everything, right? They'd set up altars. Uh, for worship of unknown gods, just to cover all the bases. In case we missed somebody, there, you know, there's some inexplicable phenomenon taking place. We don't know which god did it. Maybe we're just going to set one up to the unknown god just to show some respect. <laughs> but we don't know who that is. <clears throat> and Paul took advantage of this implicit admission. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's probably a bit ironic uh, for him to say, I, mean, I see that you're making a great display of piety. <laughs> He's walked around the city, and um, uh, some ancient historian said it was probably easier in Athens to find a god than a man. Um, there's lots of idols all over the place. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he, um, he's saying, look, I know you pride yourselves in your knowledge. But let me tell you, you don't even know the one true God. So what good is your knowledge? He addresses their idol with the truth, which had been unknown to them, <laughs> the truth about God. And his speech really does address their culture very well. Verses 24 and 25, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This 
totally undermines the idolatry of the whole city, which is filled with pagan temples that are built with hands. Pagan temples that are built as dwelling places for the gods who are built with hands. <laughs> Such idolatry is, um, is ridiculous. It's insane. It's not logical. The one true God doesn't need any of that. In fact, he's the one who gives us everything that we need. We depend on him. He doesn't depend on us. In fact, it's pretty offensive to God to suggest that he does depend on us, right? To suggest that we've created him when we've created a little statue. Or to suggest that we've helped him by making a nice temple for him to live in. Or to suggest that we've fed or filled him by giving things to him. Sacrifices or money. As if he needed anything. What did our Old Testament reading say from Psalm 50? I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me. In the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. So we're supposed to acknowledge with thanksgiving that everything we have comes from God. We're supposed to call on him for help and glorify him by our dependence on him for our deliverance. But when we make idols, whatever they are, to be our gods, we try to put ourselves in a position of control, and we treat the gods like some kind of spiritual candy dispenser. Right? If we put in X amount of time, money, energy, devotion, prayers, whatever, then this God will give us the pleasures or power or prestige that we've earned. This God will owe us for trying hard enough, for being good enough. And that reversal is about the worst thing you can imagine when you've got an uncontrollable, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, who gives you your very existence. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. <clears throat> so to the Athenians, who viewed themselves as superior because of their culture, because of their history, their wisdom, philosophy. This is another hack at their idols, right? They're not superior as a race, as a nation. We've all been in this thing together from the beginning. We all come from the same place. And we don't make ourselves better than others by the boundary markers that we draw between ourselves and them. The sovereign God has been the Lord of nations throughout history. He causes nations to rise and fall according to his will. He makes them to stay within the boundaries geographically that he's allotted to them. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. It's a picture of <clears throat> groping around in the dark. And uh, 
they should perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. All the enlightenment that they have pursued amounts to nothing if they haven't been able to find the one true God who has been orchestrating all of creation, all of history, so that he might be found. Have they discovered him by groping around in the dark of human wisdom and philosophy? Nope. Have we discovered the one true God by clinging to our idols? Nope. Because really, we have not been looking for him. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that basically we've put on blindfolds and we only pretend that we're looking for God when really we've exchanged the worship of him, we've exchanged it for worship of things that we can control, that we can craft and shape with our own imaginations. We could find him if if we wanted to, right? Because he's right there. He's made everything that exists. He rules over it all. It all attests to his glory. Paul continues, he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Peterson explains this as God, God, not merely the creation, is the environment in which we exist. As a personal being, he can be known, understood, and trusted. God is all around us waiting to be found. Again, Paul in Romans says that we all have an innate knowledge of God, but that we suppress that knowledge with self-deception and with our idolatry. But if we would stop to think clearly, even just for a moment, we would realize how ridiculous our idolatry really is. Paul continues, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, Being then God's offspring, we're made to be like him. We're of his kind. We're made in his image. We have all the traits of personality that he has. We ought not to think then that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, the craft or skill, the imagination of man. If God made us to be like him, what are we doing making inanimate things to take his place, right? Why would we replace the eternal, infinite, personal God with things like bank accounts for our security or images on a computer screen for our love or new shoes for our identity? The times of ignorance God overlooked, Paul says, but, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. So when we give ourselves to idols, even if our idol is knowledge, we have committed ourselves to ignorance of the one true God. And that's not good. It's something that God has to overlook. But he's not doing it anymore. That stopped when Jesus came. God is no longer letting people get away with not thinking about him. He has come to confront our ignorance of himself. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He's made the truth about himself known in Jesus, and he is commanding all people everywhere to repent of not knowing him. 
We've all got to stop this pursuit of idols and come to know God. We've got to stop giving ourselves to lies and deceit and come to know the truth that the whole world is meant to know that God has worked throughout history to teach people. Leslie Newbegin said in that quote in the beginning of the bulletin, that truth is not a doctrine or a worldview or even a religious experience. It is certainly not to be found by repeating abstract nouns like justice and love. That truth is the man, Jesus Christ, in whom God was reconciling the world. The truth is personal. The truth is concrete. The truth is historical. So Paul, in addressing the false spirituality of Athens, provided the truth about God, and that truth is Jesus. We're to pursue the true knowledge of God. We're to repent from not knowing him anymore because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The whole world stands accountable to the one true God. And one day he will judge the whole world, not arbitrarily, not on a curve, but in perfect righteousness. And he will do this in the person of Jesus Christ. God has guaranteed the truth of this for all people to know for certain, historically and publicly, when he raised Jesus from the dead. And this is only bad news for you, this coming judgment. This is only bad news for you if you don't know God. If you continue to reject him, by worshiping your false gods, but why would you want to keep doing that? Now you know that there's a God who gives you life and breath and everything. Now you know that he has orchestrated history in order that you might seek and find him. Now you know that he has visited the world and let himself be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now you know that the one who will judge us in all holiness first died in order to remove your sins and grant you his righteousness. Jesus said in prayer to his heavenly Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what's it going to be? Repent from not knowing God, believe the gospel, Receive eternal life with a loving, patient God who upholds your very existence by his power and his will and who gave you his own son to bring you into relationship with him? Or grope in the dark, pretending to look for God in idols, even though he's clearly revealed himself to you already. And by continuing to grope in the dark, provoking his righteous anger in the judgment. Paul learned about his audience. He learned about what they valued, about what they turned to for life instead of the one true God. And Paul told his audience the truth about God in a way that addressed and undermined those idols. He told them the gospel of Jesus Christ who gives real life. He told them to turn away from those idols and to turn to God in faith. It's pretty simple, right? Um, that's good, clear, faithful evangelism. Let's aim for that. 
And uh, let's pray that God would be pleased to supply the results. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you've uh, granted us many gifts. You've given us all gifts um, to be used for the sake of your kingdom, uh, for the sake of your church being built up. And um, some of those gifts come in the form of relationships that we have with uh, people who don't yet believe the gospel. And we pray that you would help us, that you would give us clarity of thought as we uh, try to approach our friends with the gospel, as we try to find out more about them, as we learn about their their hopes and their dreams and um, how those have most likely been uh, misplaced, not placed in you. And we pray that uh, you would show us um, for ourselves and for all those around us how uh, the good news of Jesus Christ meets all of our hopes and dreams. We pray that you would help us to become uh, better evangelists uh, because we we want to do this out of uh, thanksgiving, uh, to express our obedience to you, and um, to give you the glory that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.